Part of church planning is you wear many hats, and I, though it's not in my job description, I lead worship for our congregation every Sunday. Um, so it is such a privilege to be led in song. So thank you, team, um, for, for that. Um, as Deemer said, my name is Kevin Sanders. Um, we have planted our planting Seven Mile Road uh, Church in Waltham, Massachusetts. Seven Mile Road is a reference to Luke 24. The road to Emmaus was seven miles long where Jesus opened the scriptures and pointed to himself through the Old Testament um, to the disciples and their eyes were open to who he was. Um, and uh, Waltham is just nine miles along the Charles River west of downtown Boston, just so you know, in an area that is uh, 2% uh, evangelical followers of Jesus Christ. So great mission field there. And so to come and um, report on that earlier and also just to say thank you um, is, a, is a privilege for me because uh, Harbin's has supported us. I think it's been about five years since I've been here. We're in our fourth year of ministry there. And so thank you guys so much for this opportunity. Um, again, as Deemer said, uh, those cards there so you can contact me. There's also a way to, to uh, have just a personal connection if you want to do a FaceTime, Skype, if you want to hear more about the ministry. I know some of you did earlier in the Sunday school hour. I'd love to share more about that with you. But the purpose of this time is to, to open God's Word. And so if you would... I mean, you stay seated for a moment, but turn to Psalm 46 with me, if you will. Psalm 46. Before we read this text together, I want to read you something that's found in the introduction of every Bible produced by Gideon International. Maybe you've seen a Gideon Bible in a hotel room before. Maybe you own a copy. But they answer the question, what is this book? And listen to what they say, and let this prepare our hearts to hear God's word. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, and the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. That's the word of God that we approach this morning. And so with that, let's stand together for the reading of God's word in Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations to the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, your word is sacred content to us. We ask in these next moments that your Holy Spirit would open our spiritual eyes and open our hearts to the reality that you are our victorious and ever-present refuge in this life and in the trials we face. We pray this by your grace and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, your Son, amen. You can be seated. 1527 was one of the most trying years of Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther was the Protestant reformer. While many were celebrating Halloween, theology nerds everywhere were celebrating Reformation Day last Wednesday. In 1517, Luther hammered the 95 Theses on the the door at Wittenberg, the church there, reforming the church, trying to bring the church back to the Word of God. But 10 years later, in 1527, Luther faced incredible suffering. His health was declining. One Sunday when he was preaching a sermon, he had a dizzy spell in the middle of the sermon. He had a friend over one night shortly after that, as Luther was prone to do, his home was always open. And as he was entertaining a guest, he had an intense ringing in his ear so bad that he fell over and and said, give me water or I'll die. Then he grew immediately cold and he thought he was going to die in that moment. He recovered physically but then was overcome with a deep, deep depression. He had been fighting the spiritual battle for God's truth for 10 years now. And it meant threats on his life, threats on his family. He almost single-handedly caused political turmoil in his country. And now, he even had close friends who once agreed with him who were turning on him over theological issues. He was in a dark place. And to make matters worse, in August of 1527, the plague came to Wittenberg. And Luther, in his Christ-like desire, cared for the sick. And in doing so, his son contracted the plague. By God's grace, his son recovered. But what a year. Physical pain. Spiritual and emotional pain watching loved ones suffer, political turmoil. Yet somehow, in this whirlwind of a year for Luther, by God's grace, 
he was able to take time to reflect deeply on Psalm 46, the psalm that's our text for this morning that we just read. And in his reflection, Luther, who loved music, he wrote a hymn that has become one of the most popular hymns in church history. We sang a modern rendition of it this morning. The hymn is called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It came out of this storm in Luther's life. And the first verse says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, a defensive wall, never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Have you ever had a time like Luther's 1527 in your life? Maybe not to that degree, but if we're all honest, there are times where we have suffered greatly. We've experienced physical pain. Maybe we've watched loved ones experience physical pain. We've struggled with spiritual questions and doubts. Maybe there is depression there. The hope of Psalm 46 is that we who are in the midst of suffering and those of you who are not in the midst of but will encounter suffering would find that along with Luther, along with the sons of Korah, along with the Israelites who sang this hymn, that God is your victorious and ever-present refuge. That's what Psalm 46 sums up for us. And it does this really in in three ways. It gives us three statements about God. If we were to break this psalm down, these will be on the screen. This is our outline, but I want to go ahead and give them to you. When we read this psalm, we see first that God is our refuge. Then we see that God is ever-present, never leaves. And then lastly, we see that God is victorious. And then the psalm calls us to respond by looking to our ever-present and victorious refuge. So let's walk through those three doctrinal truths about God with the hope and prayer that we would be grounded in who God is so we can weather the storm with grace and giving Him glory. So number one, first thing we see in this psalm is that God is our refuge. Psalmist begins, God is our refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble. A refuge is simply a, a shelter. You can think a shelter from rain or storm or a safe hiding place. My wife's grandmother is in Caledonia, Mississippi. I don't know where that is either, but that's where she lives. And she has, she lives alone, and she has an above-ground storm shelter. And they came in, they, they dug down deep, they poured the cement deep, and there is this just small shelter for, you know, maybe two or three people can fit in there. But the purpose of the shelter is that if a tornado comes through and takes out the house and takes out the carport and takes the car and throws it, you know, two miles down the road, what's the one thing that's still standing? The shelter. Right? The psalm says that is God for us. He is our refuge. He's our protection but he's also our strength and our help. So to say that God is your refuge is to say that in him you find your protection and your strength and your help. He's your hiding place. You go to him so that when the storms come, yes, they're painful. Yes, they affect you, but they cannot destroy you because you're safe. I was a youth pastor um, several years ago. And one year we decided to take our high school senior guys on a, um, 
a weekend retreat right before they got out of high school and went to college. And the point was just sort of to have a, you know, two-day intensive discipleship prayer time. Um, And so there was about eight of us, and we went up to a a conference center, retreat center in Tacoa. And it was sort of off-season. There weren't a lot of people there. And one night, we, you know, we had free time. We were hanging out. We said, let's play sardines. Now, sardines is reverse hide-and-seek, okay? One person hides, and then you go try and find them. And so, okay, we'll start. So the pastor's son uh, said, I'll go first. He said, okay, so you go and you hide. Ten minutes later, let's go find Aubrey. That's his name. Huge conference center. So we start looking for Aubrey. And ten minutes go by, no Aubrey. I'm not worried. Just ten minutes. Then 30 minutes go by, no Aubrey. And then 40 minutes go by, no Aubrey. And we've looked everywhere. And then an hour and a half goes by, and I'm getting worried. I'm thinking, I've lost the pastor's firstborn son. Like, I'm like, who do I call first? The pastor, the police, like we're out in the woods. Who knows that? Did he get, was he taken, you know? Two hours go by, and I have my phone out, and I am about to call my pastor and say, Ken, I've lost your son. Um, and Aubrey just emerges with a big smile on his face. And I'm, I'm equal parts impressed and angry, right? And I said, man, where were you? And here's what he said. He, he, he showed us where he was hiding, and he said, I w- he was hiding behind a curtain. He's like skinny as a beanpole. He said, you guys walked by me probably 20 or 30 times. He said, at one point you were probably inches from my face and you had no idea I was there. I see Aubrey found an incredible hiding place. So much so that even those who were looking for him couldn't touch him. He was untouchable. That's what it is to say that God is our refuge. Storms come, pain takes place, but if we are hidden in God, yes, we will endure trials, but they can't ultimately hurt us. Now the psalmist goes on to show with poetic language in verses 2 and 3 that God is our refuge in all things. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What are are the, the sons of Korah doing here with this language? Well, they're using poetic language, and it could mean a number of things in the Old Testament. Oftentimes this kind of language of, of mountains moving and floods is, is sort of apocalyptic end times language. Right? It could also refer to the reality of natural disasters, earthquakes and floods. But the point here is that whatever you face, the heaviest storms you face, the storms that could even destroy mountains cannot destroy those who find their refuge in God. We can insert all sorts of different trials we face here. Think of national and world crisis. How many of us are anxious about the leadership of our country? Or the moral and spiritual decay that we see around us? What about our brothers and sisters in Christ who experienced full-fledged persecution around the world? Now, we, friends, we do not experience persecution here. There is increased hostility to biblical Christianity, yes. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world this morning who are doing this in secret and risking their lives for it. What about the personal pain, that ongoing struggle 
with a particular sin that leaves you feeling defeated or the sickness of a loved one or that unmet expectation you've had of someone. Think of the words of James here. Consider it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. The point is, listen, all of you suffer. All of you experience storms. Therefore, all of you can see the hope of finding refuge in God. And notice what he says in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2. He says, therefore, because God is our refuge in these things, the result is we will not fear. We won't fear. Now the question for us is not, will these storms come? They will come. They do come. They're repeated in our lives. It's the effects of living in a fallen world. The question you and I need to answer this morning is, when these storms come and when these battles rage on, where or who do you go to as your refuge and strength? Where do you look? Do you try to build a storm shelter out of your own strength? I'm going to plan my way out of this. I can figure it out. I'm strong enough to endure this. That is the immediate response of our pragmatic culture. Even we who are in the church and love Jesus and love the Word of God, we are so influenced by our culture. That's our immediate response when we face troubles, isn't it? How can I fix this? But our response should be, To go to God. Do you go to God as your refuge and strength? Now there's a question here. What what do you mean, Kevin? What does the Bible mean when it says go to God as your refuge? Find refuge in Him. The most practical way I think we do this is by prayer. To go to God and lay our hearts out before Him in prayer. And I was telling the Sunday school uh, hour before this, prayer is the hardest thing for Western American Christians. Because we feel like we're not doing anything when we're praying. We would never say that, but we feel like we're wasting our time. But what is this book of Psalms? What is this, the longest book in the the Bible? It is a book of prayers that God gave us to put in our mouths to pray to Him. This is the only inspired book of of the Bible whose sole purpose is, hey, God's people, sing this and pray this. So to find our refuge in God is to take our troubles, to take our storms, to take our doubts, to take our weaknesses and lay them before God in prayer. Why is this so difficult for us? Not only because we're just a pragmatic people, but because to seek refuge means you are admitting a weakness, right? To say, I need help, to say, I need a hiding place, is to say, I can't do this on my own. And again, we're a culture that loves heroes. Success means you're strong. It means you're wealthy. This is probably why we're fascinated with so many superhero movies. I can't even keep up with it anymore, right? Because we love to view ourselves as strong people. No one wants their team, their favorite team, whoever that may be, and I'm from Boston, so I'm not going to say anything 
about the Patriots or Tom Brady. But no one wants their team to go out on the field and say, you know what, we're weak and tired and we forfeit. Certainly there is a place for strength, but know this, brothers and sisters, in God's economy, the only valuable currency is weakness. Do you realize that? Do you realize that that's the gospel? If, If we can't admit that we're in desperate need of intervention on an ongoing basis, then we don't understand the good news of the gospel. This is why Pastor Demer read from 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 this morning. Listen again what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For... When I am weak, then I am strong. I want you to think about that last phrase for a second. Paul does not say, when I am weak, after a time I'll stop being weak and then I will become strong. Paul says, in my weakness, I have strength in Christ. In other words, the, the one prerequisite to taking refuge in God, to taking refuge in Christ, is the full recognition of your weakness. This is what happens when we come to Christ in faith. We say, God, I have nothing. I am weak. I need you to save me. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Weakness is the Way. It's an extended exposition of 2 Corinthians 12. And he says this, The way of true spiritual strength, leading to real fruitfulness in Christian life and service, is the humble, self-distrustful way of consciously recognized weakness in spiritual things. That's what it means to take refuge in God. Are you taking refuge in him? Are you taking refuge in something else? Every other shelter will fail. Every other thing you put your trust in will eventually burn away. Your money will not go with you to eternity. Your house, your job, your self-confidence will not go with you to eternity. The one refuge that remains for eternity is Christ. Take refuge in Him. God is our refuge. Then secondly, we see that God is ever-present. The presence of God is emphasized all throughout this psalm. At verse 1, a very present help in trouble. Verse 4, the city of God is the holy habitation of the Most High. Verse 5, God is in her midst. Verse 7 and 11, repeat, the Lord of hosts is with us. That's a, a dominant theme in this psalm. God is with His people. I want you to look for a minute at verse 4. There's some language here for us New Testament Christians that may may make us scratch our heads a little bit, so we need to deal with it. Verse 4 says, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. What uh, is the psalmist talking about here? Well, First, the city of God refers to Jerusalem. Just a few psalms later, Psalm 48, verse 8, tells us that God will establish Jerusalem, the city of God, forever. This holy habitation, in verse 4, 
is referring to the temple within Jerusalem. It's where God would dwell among his people. Inside the Holy of Holies of the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. It was the dwelling place of God among his covenant people. Okay? So you see this emphasis on presence. But then there's a river. Right? So you've got a city. You've got a, a, a temple. What about this river? Because here's what's interesting. Jerusalem didn't have a river. So what, what are the psalmists talking about here? That there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the people of God. Well, the river is the flowing presence of God to the people of God. Now, what this is, this is a covenant promise of God that he will continually be with his people. This is why Psalm 48 says that Jerusalem, the city of God, will be established forever. God will be with his people for eternity. But more than that, this is, this is a foreshadowing of the continual presence of God that is going to come not in a place, not in a temple, not in a building, not in a city, but in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the temple in Jerusalem, they were actually destroyed in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. That doesn't sound very eternal, does it? Then it was rebuilt, and then that happened again in AD 70. The Romans destroyed it. And so what can we say? This holy habitation in verse 4 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the true and greater temple, which is Jesus Christ. How do we know this? John is very clear about this, Jesus being a fulfillment of the temple. John 2.19, Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But, John adds, he was speaking about the temple of his body. How does John's gospel begin? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Jesus is the presence of God for his people. Okay, so what about the river? What does the river mean then? If we're to understand the temple in Jerusalem as finding their future fulfillment of the presence of God in Jesus, what do we do with this river? Well, John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's not quoting Psalm 46 there, but he's referencing a few other psalms. He says, Now Jesus said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. So the river is not in Jerusalem physically. The river is the Holy Spirit of God's presence for the people of God who find God's presence in the face of Jesus Christ. Translation, if you want the ever-presence of God, where do you go? Or rather, who do you go to? You go to Jesus. You look to Christ in faith. And there's a future fulfillment of this as well. When we turn to the end of the story, Revelation 22.1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
If we want to know God's ever presence in the midst of our suffering, where should we look? We should look to Jesus. And the promise is that he will never leave or forsake his people. And notice the results of this. The psalmist has already said this in verse 2. First, it casts out fear. Therefore, we will not fear. If we find refuge in God, if we look to Christ and experience the presence of God, the result is fear is cast out. I have a, a, a son who struggles with night terrors. And those are scary, by the way, when you're in the middle of the night and you just, you know. And I'm not talking like I woke up and I had a bad dream, but my five-year-old son will wake up and in sheer terror and not know where he is. And he can't wake up and he's scared and he can't tell you what he's dreaming about. And so my wife and I discovered the only thing that will console him is to grab him, hold him, and whisper in his ear and rub his back and say, it's okay, dad is here, you're going to be okay, you're having a dream, wake up, over and over again. Sometimes it's taken 15 to 20 minutes. Or you can splash water in his face, but that's a side note. But I think that's a wonderful picture of the father's love when his children are suffering, right? It's an encouragement to us. When we're in the midst of, we could call it a night terror of suffering, and we, we just, we can't even hear the voice of God. We wonder, are you even there? I'm reading your word and it's dry, I'm praying, and it's like I'm talking to a ceiling, but we have the promise of his word that because of Christ, God our Father is there embracing us, saying, I'm here, wake up. I'm here, wake up. And one day, eventually, we wake up and look back and realize God was with me all along. That's the promise of the gospel. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is in our midst through Jesus. So his presence casts out out fear, but also his presence brings gladness. God's presence gets rid of something, but it also brings something in. Psalm 1611 is my all-time favorite passage of Scripture. I was tempted to just like throw all this out and just start preaching Psalm 1611, but we'd be here for three hours probably. But the the way that, that Psalm ends, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the pathways of life, and in your presence there is fullness of what? Joy. Not fear, not anxiety, but joy. If you read early, the earlier part of that psalm, the psalm begins with David struggling in the throes of depression. But you watch as he's going through and reminding himself the truth of, of the gospel, how does the psalm end? With confidence in the joyful presence of God. That's a promise for us Christians. John Piper puts it this way. He says, heartfelt confidence that because of Christ, our all-controlling God is 100% for us, is the key to indomitable joy, unending joy, joy that can't be thwarted by any trial. So God is our refuge. God is ever present. And third, God is victorious. God is victorious. He not only protects as a refuge and promises his presence to us in the gospel, he also fights for his people. Look at verse 6. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. Then the psalmist contrasts that. Here's what the nations do. They rage against God. They fight against God's people. 
But what does God do? He just utters his voice and the whole earth melts. He's brought desolations on the earth, verse 8. He makes wars cease. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the chariots with fire. The point here is, listen, all of the attempts to thwart God and his plan and his people are nothing when they stand against God himself. Christ will build his church. Christ will have his people. The enemy will snatch none of us from his hand, no matter what trial or pain or struggle he throws our way. We have victory in God. This is an ongoing theme throughout the Old Testament. God miraculously delivered his people from slavery out of Egypt. He provided military victories for Joshua as they entered into the promised land. He constantly warded off enemies and preserved his people, even when they were unfaithful to him. Friends, we have a great victory, a greater victory in Christ our Savior. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2. Verses 13 through 15. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see what this gospel hope does for us in the midst of our trials? The temptation when we're struggling is to think God doesn't care. Christian, if that's you, one of the best things you can do for your soul is to remind yourselves of the victory of Christ over your sin. Because you know what that means? That means the greatest pain you and I could ever experience has been done away with on the cross of Jesus Christ. To remind ourselves that yes, I'm suffering, yes, I'm in pain, but hell has been removed from me by the free grace of Jesus is an encouragement to your soul. But it's not just a past victory. One, one helpful way to think of the victory of Jesus is in past, present, future. Colossians 2 talks about how Christ removed the past penalty of sin from us, right? But also in the gospel, we are promised Christ's victory over the present power of sin. Romans 8, 13 says, By the power of the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you will live. So we have forgiveness and victory from past penalty, from present power, but also as we look to the future, in Christ, we have victory over the future presence of sin. Our, victor our victory in Christ is holistic. It covers everything. And how good it is to know that because of Jesus, whatever storms come, even if those storms take our life, they cannot take our eternity with Christ. God is victori victorious. Now if you would, turn with me to Revelation 21 for a moment. This is the end of the story. I was on the plane yesterday, and the guy in front of me, um, I was eavesdropping, and he watched about 10 movies, two-hour flight, and he, he, went, he picked a movie, fast-forwarded to the last, like, five minutes, watched the end, and then went to the next movie. 
And he did that about five or six or seven or eight or ten times. I, and I, I was so intrigued by trying to figure out why you would want to do that to see how it ends and if the rest is worth watching, I don't know. But as I think about the Bible, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When you're in the, the throes of, uh, of suffering, it's, it's helpful, it's important to remind yourself of how the story ends. And this is what Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 7 says. This is the future victory we have. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Doesn't it help in the midst of our struggles and trials to know that this is, as Paul says elsewhere, but a light and momentary affliction? Friends, what we have coming, the finish line, should encourage you to endure now. We experience God as our refuge now only in part. We experience the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit now only in part. But one day, we will experience God his victory and his presence in perfection with no pain. I remember finishing my senior year of high school and it, was, it seemed like the longest year of my life. I got a case of what's called senioritis. I think I had that my freshman year, but anyways. But you know, I remember my teachers and guidance counselors who I saw often. I remember what they reminded me. Just a few more months. Just a few more months. Just endure for a few more months. The finish line is there, right? See, setting our sights towards the approaching freedom that we have when Christ returns, it'll sustain us in our present suffering, right? God is victorious, and one day, We'll experience that to the fullest. Now lastly, as we, as we start to close here, we see these truths. God is our refuge. God is ever-present. God is victorious. But how are we to respond to this? And there are some sermon texts that are very clear, uh, or Bible texts, that are very clear on what you should do. Right? But then there are some texts that are very clear about where you should look. And that's what, what this text is. The psalmist responds to all of this in verse 8. 
And he calls us to behold. Come. He's saying this is who God is. So come and behold God. Behold what he has done. Behold who he is. To behold something is not just to look with our physical eyes, but to see and perceive with a spiritual understanding. Or we could say it's to look at God and embrace the truth of who he is by faith. And that's how we're to respond to these truths. We're to simply behold him. So if you're in here and you are not a believer, let me encourage you, not just encourage you, let me plead with you to behold the work of Christ for the first time. Hopefully you have seen, if not, I pray you do, that all the ways you seek refuge are futile, that you have nothing, no goodness in you to stand before God, no victory in yourself. You're in desperate need of a Savior, but God has given us that Savior in Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life that we could not live and died the sinner's death that we deserve to die, not him because he was sinless, was laid in the grave. God accepted that payment for us and raised him from the dead so that we would, by faith, take refuge in him. Friends, if you haven't done that, can I plead with you? Talk to someone next to you about what it means to find refuge in Christ by faith. But to those of us who are Christians, the reality is, is it's easy for that simple childlike faith to fade away and wear off. It's easy when the storms keep bashing us against the rocks to become pessimistic, to lose sight of who God is. And so to you, Christian, I say, behold God as your victorious and ever-present refuge afresh, Remind yourself of your testimony. Remind yourselves of these truths and look to Christ time and time again as your refuge and strength. And lastly, the psalm tells us to be still and know. And the translation there is is so encouraging. Cease striving and know that he is God. Stop trying to work on this all by yourself. Stop looking to yourself to solve your problems. Cease striving. Be still and know that He is God. Not know with a mere head knowledge, but know God intimately with a heart knowledge that seeks to worship Him and find refuge in Him. This psalm is interesting. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus had this psalm in mind when He gave us the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, Verse 20, Jesus tells us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Psalm 46 ends with, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What does Jesus want us to know? As we go about our lives as followers of Jesus, He will never leave. He will never cease to be our refuge if we would look to Him in faith. Let's pray together.